Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to be back after our summer hiatus and to have you with us for the start of season two. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshuk, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the Center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human, and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. A year ago, on this show's debut episode, I referenced the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and Tony McDade. The Humanities Center at Texas Tech had just finished a year-long theme on justice, and the killings of these Black citizens, among so many others, advertised the particular persistence of injustice circumscribed by race. As I said in that show's opening remarks, the visibility of Black lives in peril, either from white violence or through the disproportionate effects of a global pandemic, were persuasive evidence of inequality across varying identities and subject positions. This past March reminded us of this point in horrifying terms, when Robert Aaron Long's shooting spree in Asian-owned businesses in Georgia claimed eight lives. Long's violence was the crescendo in a year-long amplification of racist terror against Asians and Pacific Islanders in the United States that disproportionately targeted women, trans, and gender non-binary subjects, and included, to that point in time, more than 4,000 different documented acts. Later, throughout the spring and summer, the discovery of hundreds of indigenous children buried in unmarked graves at former residential schools in Western Canada, continued this grotesque reminder that racism and white supremacy are enduringly cruel and tragically commonplace. But these are only the most spectacular manifestations of racism. These are the incidents that compel incredulous white people to consign racism primarily to the past or dismiss it only as the willful malice of corrupt actors the Bad Apple Cop, the overzealous Community Watch, the Lone Gunman. What of the other ways that white supremacist thinking and more subtle discriminatory actions impact people's lives? What taken-for-granted certainties in the white imagination would we need to reconsider if we assumed racism as always and already, rather than extraordinary or rare? Think of the decision by the University of North Carolina's Board of Trustees this past summer not to offer tenure to journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, a Pulitzer Prize winner, a MacArthur Genius Grant awardee. But Hannah-Jones is also the creator of the New York Times' wide-ranging 1619 Project, a series that reconsiders American history through the lens of Black experience, and which announces, in her introduction, our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. UNC's trustees weren't even the only body rankled by this challenge to the self-congratulatory rhetoric of American idealism. For months, we've seen the onset of legislative challenges to critical race theory as an academic discipline and anti-racism as a scholarly starting point. Countless anti-racist scholars press the value of taking racism as a starting point in our understanding, rather than writing it off as a regrettable blight, largely gone as we move toward a more perfect union. 
using an acceptance of racism as a way into thinking about our thinking. These scholars challenge us to leave no value or presupposition unchecked. For instance, in his recent work on property, Ronaldo Walcott directs our attention to slavery's geography as a site of origins. Walcott writes, The plantation persists as a largely unseen superstructure shaping modern, everyday life and many of its practices, attitudes, and assumptions, even if some of these have been, over time, transformed. As Walcott concludes, Black people, once owned as property, understand that property remains a central roadblock in our collective quest to figure out how to both live differently and better together. Here at the Humanities Center at Texas Tech, we're inspired by the perspicacity of this work and also invigorated by scholarship that forces academics to be reflexive and examine our own complicity. In her recent PMLA essay, The Shush, for example, Kyla Wazana Tompkins writes, The world is burning, and let's be blunt, despite incremental movements forward, the work of English as a literary field has always been, and continues to be, disproportionately, to uphold an Anglo-Saxonist tradition that, while productive of some major critical movements, seems barely able to ethically respond to our current moment. More than 15 years ago, the Mi'kmaq scholar Bonita Lawrence made a similar argument about social justice in universities, cautioning that both feminism and anti-racism have been part and parcel of an education system that has addressed male and white privilege while ignoring her family's indigeneity. On today's show, we'll follow all these contexts as we introduce the center's scholarly theme for the year, anti-racism. I'll speak with four of the members of our programming team to articulate the range of thinking that shapes our events and activities this year, and to hear how these TTU professors envision possibility as we join the academic work of the humanities with the anti-racist energies that circulate beyond the campus or the classroom. All of this after a short break. Did you know that you can donate directly to the Humanity Center at Texas Tech? Gifts to our Excellence Fund supplement the generous funding we receive from the President's Office, the Provost's Office, and the Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Your gift supports the free programming we offer, including online seminars, local film showings, art exhibitions, and a wide array of visiting speakers. Donations also help promote faculty research like that featured on today's show, or allow us to support graduate students in the humanities by funding participation in national conferences and seminars. And it helps pay for this show. If you're interested in donating to the Humanities Center, please visit our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and click on the big red donate button on the front page. Thank you. I'm joined now by members of the anti-racism programming team for this year, uh, and I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves one by one here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nadia Flores Yefal, and I'm a, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Social Work. 
Hello, everybody. My name is Aretha Marbley, and I'm a professor of counselor education in uh, the College of Education. Hi, everyone. I'm Jennifer Nish, and I'm an assistant professor of technical communication and rhetoric in the English department. Hi, my name is Bo Bilaya. I'm an assistant professor in the English department in technical communication and rhetoric program. All right. Thank you so much. I'm grateful to all four of you for sitting down to talk with me today. I'm wondering, actually, if we could begin our conversation this afternoon by having you tell me about the genesis for this theme and uh, what events or ideas led to the conception of, of our programming for this year. So uh, to get into kind of where the idea started, we actually have to go uh, all the way back to May and June of 2020 when there were protests uh, across the U.S. against uh, police violence. Um, and those were connected, especially, I think, in public memory to the murders of George, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, and what I was noticing happening alongside all of these conversations about uh, defunding the police and, um, and racism were also conversations about the different spheres of people's lives in which uh, racism needed to be addressed. So this is not just a problem with the police. This is a larger systemic problem. And um, if people are serious about anti-racism, they need to be looking at the different kind of places in their lives where they can be addressing racism in, in the communities and um, systems around them. Um, so kind of in the midst of some of those conversations, a few folks in the English department started kind of talking about what could we do to be thinking about uh, racism and um, the way that it shows up in our, um, in our department and at our university? Um, and one of the, the things that we kind of did as a result of those conversations was we decided to try to engage in conversation with some other people at Texas Tech and figure out who's already doing work on anti-racism, who can we connect to, uh, to kind of um, see what kinds of activities we can do and where we could connect to other people at the university who are doing work on anti-racism. And so the conversation around building this theme um, involved sort of connections between um, this small group of folks in the English department. And then we reached out to uh, Dr. Flores, Dr. Marbley, Dr. Ross in the law school, and Dr. Chapman um, to kind of build some bridges across campus and develop some programming that would take, take up some of the work that's already being done and the expertise of folks already doing the work while also sort of pushing forward with this momentum generated by the events in, in 2020. So you mentioned that one of the ideas at the heart of the theme was to build connections between 
what's going on here at Texas Tech and what's going on in a larger setting in academia around anti-racism. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, what other figures, uh, what other scholars, what other books in the world um, we're connecting to with this year's programming and also what activities from the past that have already been done here at Texas Tech are we building off of? We, um, at least in in sociology, uh, we can build on the work of, uh, for example, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, and he wrote the book uh, Racism Without Races, Colorblind Racism and the Persistence of Racial Inequality in America. And he, he talks about how most of us are in denial that, that we are racist and, you know, nobody's racist. And, and that's kind of like one of the things that, you know, we need to think about. Um, the other, uh, we can also build on the work of Ibram Kendi, and he's the author of the book, um, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And um, so he basically uh, argues that um, we, we, you know, we just don't want to be, um, uh, we, we just don't want to be, um, called racist. We deny we are racist. And that's basically the problem that, you know, we need to kind of accept, um, when we make a mistake, and when we are, um, you know, doing something that might be racist. So we have to be kind of like more aware of our behavior and, and try to avoid these uh, in- instances. Um, and, and everything is, you know, built. He argues that everything is built on, you know, sort of like uh, how we grow up. And, and so there is no way we can avoid it, but at least we need to accept it, that kind of thing. And um, also, uh, Daryl Wing Su, who is going to be uh, coming to campus, one of the speakers that we invited, he, he has work, done work on microaggressions uh, in everyday life. That's the name of one of his books. And he also has another book on and race talk and the conspiracy of silence, where he argues that it is very difficult to talk about racism and we all try to avoid it and what to do about it. I want to jump in there that scholarship by definition means entering the academic discourse. And when we look, and I think one of the the, the most important pieces of what we have here is an amazing community of scholars who across multiple disciplines and trying to approach this, what we call, quote unquote, the feminists would say this wicked problem from multiple different perspectives. And I think the other goal is sort of with that unpacking racism in, I call real time, you know, I'm not a Facebook person, but it's interesting, real life, real time, we are live. So uh, that that's, that's amazing. And then Ernest Boyer and his work on scholarship reconsidered He says the ultimate scholarship is where we all get together and share our work and sort of move it forward in some way. Um, In my field, we also not only do we have Dr. Derwin Sue, which I'm going to mention here, but Janet Hems, who came up with 
racial identity development, white racial identity, and she was talking about it in terms of racism itself and that conversation and what that should look like. Dr. Sue, in his work on postmodern racism, uh, did a quick study where he um, had an instrument that could actually measure folks' racism, and he um, gave it to white counselors, and then he interviewed counselors of color who work with him and found that there were four groups of people, those who were racist and knew they were not, those who were not racist and thought they were, those who were and knew they were, and those who were not and thought they didn't. And they asked the question, who is it that you felt the most comfortable with or the most discomfort with? And at the top of that, the ones that were the most difficult for people of color, clients of color in his case, were the people who thought they were not and they were. And so his foundation of microaggressions pulled looking at racism beyond just the very overt type of racism to those more subtle, sometimes unconscious acts of of racism. And so to be honest with you, there are just too many scholars to name uh, in almost every field that we can think of that have contributed to it. But we really wanted to begin with our in our own backyard, figuring out who are those folks here who are already frontline um, advocates or frontline workers for, for racism. Someone said that anti-racism is not for the faint of heart. I think too the question uh, raises, uh, uh, I guess, as, as all good questions do, more questions. Um, who counts as an intellectual? Who counts as a scholar? And obviously, we're an institution of higher learning, and we respect uh, credentials, rightly so. Uh, and we will, uh, we have amazing scholars on our team. Uh, we will bring in guests who are incredible scholars themselves. But uh, repeatedly, am struck by how the work of anti-racism is so often being done. Uh, by people outside of institutions, right? The, the, the big moments of change that have come uh, in my uh, relatively brief time wrestling with these questions have come from outside the institution, right? We, a lot of us academics like to think of ourselves as radicals and we are not, by almost definition, we're in the institution, right? So this theme gives us an opportunity to, yes, sit where we're comfortable with citations, with scholarly work, uh, but also sit somewhat uncomfortably with the fact that some of the smartest, most incisive work is being done outside the academy. Um, Dr. Marbley uh, last year had uh, the uh, book read with uh, um, Barbara Ransby, uh, her book, her biography on Ella Baker, uh, an activist uh, teacher, uh, movement teacher. Um, I was really struck by one of the quotes in that, really struck by one of the quotes in that introduction, uh, where it talks about for her, the long-term goal for which she admittedly had no blueprint was simply a more democratic, egalitarian, and humane world. Uh, and I really like that tension between there, there being a larger systematic goal, a larger systemic goal of change, that it was coming from outside the institution and there was no blueprint, there was nothing you could follow necessarily to make it happen. So uh, when I think about you know, what the foundation is, that's that's one of them. So we'll be reaching out, or we have reached out to people in the community. We're dealing, we're, we're, we're engaging with artists, with community uh, uh, activists uh, for this theme. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited about that, that, uh, that being a part of our work uh, in the next year. Um, so I feel like we talk a lot in our society about race and racism, but not always in the most productive way. And one of the words that you've all mentioned a few times in our conversation already is systemic, or we've also talked about institutions. And so what are some of the 
general misconceptions about racist and what it actually means to be racist that you think this theme will help us address over the course of the year? I want to begin that it's interesting that the Bo mentioned uh, intelligence and intellectual. Somebody defined intelligence as the ability to analyze facts and intellectual as the ability to analyze the analysis. It's been interesting as we kind of move forward with that. But for me, you know, in, in being able to define racism, I think it's a social construct, I guess, in some ways. In my head, it's, it's been a legal issue. But some of the misconception is that people of color, for example, can be racist. By definition, they cannot because they don't have the power. Racially biased, bigots, you can come up with some other things, but the racism tends to refer to those in power, okay? And so, um, and, and I think um, the, uh, the other misconception that it is a peoples of color issue, it is not. You see, the conception is a white people issue. So the idea is because if it was true, uh, this much work as people of color have done, racism would have disappeared. And so, anyway, those are the two things that, I, that come to my mind when I think about the misconceptions. Um, something else that I was reflecting on in relation to this question is that I think um, there are a lot of people whose idea about what it means to be racist or what racism looks like um, is rooted in, like, very particular historical moments. Um, or, you know, the idea that, you know, racists are white nationalists and that's what a racist looks like. Or, um, you know, in um, Jim Crow, that, that's what racism looks like. And those are, you know, important histories to, to be aware of and to understand. Um, but I think it's also really important that we understand that, that what racism looks like shifts and, um, and, it's something that I think, um, you know, the, the conversation about microaggressions helps us see the ways that racism um, can occur in, you know, everyday interactions in very kind of like small ways. And um, it's something that is kind of built into the structure of our institutions. And so... Um, Something that I think is really important about anti-racism and the, and the goal of this theme is to understand that um, if we are just kind of, if, if people who, um, who have, you know, power in our society just go with the flow, that can lead to upholding racism because that's perpetuating these structures that... Um, that are racist. And so I think it's really important that we sort of um, broaden our understanding of what racism looks like and, and what being racist can mean uh, beyond some of those like really entrenched uh, ideas that, that I think um, I have seen, you know, or heard about in conversations that still kind of dominate people's imaginations about, about racism. Well, speaking of those entrenched ideas, it seems um, often many white people's response to the suggestion that they have said something or done something racist is either to react defensively and say something like, no, there's not a racist bone in my body, or to fall back on the matter of their intentions, right? To say, well, I didn't intend for that to be taken in this manner. 
what do anti-racist ideas or anti-racist scholarship, how does that help us work past that kind of stasis that we fall into in those moments? Janet Hams, whose work is on racial identity development, talks about what she calls contact naivety. She said in that phase, there are people who say there is no racism, you see. And part of that, um, and as her, her theory evolved from stages to states to statuses to what she calls stigmas, um, uh, schemas, I'm sorry, that she began to see the dynamic piece of folks' experiences with people who are different, people of color when we talk about racism. And so a lot of it is being exposed to people who are different and being able to do that work. And that's why anti-racism come in. You can, non-racist is a little different than being anti-racist. You know, one has teeth, the other one doesn't, you know, one has action. So I think in, in that respect, um, it is, as we talk about DEI, the whole idea of having that critical mass and having those kinds of things that we're able to move people from that uh, lower level of racial identity to a higher level of autonomy, where we can all start doing the real work of what I call uh, anti-racism. And may I add, uh, Mike, if I may, that, you know, as an African-American woman, it would be uh, uh, hard for me not to acknowledge the intersectional or intersectionality of race and other identities where people with multiple or intersecting identities become invisible. I want to go back to the point that uh, uh, that Mike made about um, the uh, sort of cultural anxiety, uh, the individual anxiety that comes around from being accused of or feeling as if one is being accused of being racist uh, and that question of intentions. Uh, and I have been really wrestling with this question as a, a white man. I'm oftentimes sitting there trying to excavate where, why it is I react certain ways when I uh, hear that there uh, uh, that uh, I am or somebody I know or love is acting in a way that could be construed as racist or just is racist. Um, I acknowledge the truth of what Dr. Marbley has said about how racism uh, in its Racism with teeth is really not something that you can do if you're a member of a marginalized group, right? It's something that can feel reserved uh, or that can feel unfair to have it reserved for one, one group over another. And I wondered if that uh, the, the, the problem or the challenge comes from our uh, tendency. I come from cultural studies, so I'm constantly thinking about how the cultural beha culture behaves. But I wonder if our culture's tendency to prioritize our individually conceived intentions, uh, as Mike said earlier, uh, we, we prioritize those above all else, right? I didn't intend that. That becomes the absolute uh, category for explanation and what should be treated as as valuable. Uh, and since they're our intentions, we're always able to conceive of them uh, to ourselves after the fact as pure or normal or rooted in something other than, you know, this negative race prejudice, right? So we have that. We can always retreat to our intentions. Conversely, though, and generally, I suspect uh, this is true for a lot of white people who react this way, myself included, that we've internalized the legal framework of innocent until proven guilty, combined with sort of a poorly conceived conception of beyond a reasonable doubt from the legal framework. We use that kind of as a bar. We apply it very sloppily and unevenly. Um, anytime that accusation gets put to us, uh, either against us or somebody else, um, or even when it's just you know, perceived that way, it's not actually that way, uh, or even attempts, as in the case of the much uh, debated uh, critical race theory, the attempts to explain how race is or may be a factor in explaining the, you know, the, the, 
the social, cultural, or legal uh, power distribution. So we have those really weird, those, those two things that are at cross purposes. We can always retreat to our intentions and we have this legal framework and that enables us to sort of push these things off. I think I'm hoping that our theme uh, helps people begin to see that there is something like like cultural or social headwinds that are created, right? Um, I think about the, the metaphor of like flying or sailing. If you're experiencing a headwind, you actually have to adjust your aircraft uh, or your or your boat to like actually reach the point that you want to reach. And so being anti-racism is very much about tacking against that wind. It's not enough to say, oh, I'm just not racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body. That will enable you to then drift with those institutional uh, dynamics that you don't have to see. They're often invisible. As uh, Dr. Nish has put, they're frequently changing. Uh, and so it's really, really important that people begin to see how those things work from microaggressions, right, all the way up to questions of policy um, that can you know, flow through departments and classrooms and city councils and those sorts of things. So it sounds like what you're saying as a group is that we need to push past this idea that racism, to be judged racist or for us to to identify something as racist, that we're talking about somebody's individual moral character, because that seems to be the frequent anxiety when most people, you know, hear that, that somebody else describes something they've said or done as racist. How can we then think about racism as a matter of power and privilege, um, as something we've inherited? What are what are ways that this year's theme will will help us see racism in those terms, rather than just here's an accusation about your individual person? Let me just say that um, there is a concept uh, in critical race theory by Joe Fagan. Uh, it's called uh, the white racial frame. And it's sort of like, um, it talks about how we, uh, well, how there is uh, this denial of history, for example. You know, we, we don't want to accept that, you know, the bad things that had happened in the history against people of color. Within this white racial frame, there is also what is included in the education for the children in the schools. You know, what, you know they, wherever they learn, it has to do with how they develop. And so all these children are sort of like creating this white racial frame in their minds in which um, they just learn this hierarchy automatically and they don't realize it. And, and so that's something that just comes naturally and, and they don't even know it. And so that's sort of like, you know, one of the things that can speak to it. There's a myth going on with it. And there's this, I, I think, sort of um, exploitation of, 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 of this thing called race. That is what's it's part of what is at the heart of it. So that people believe that somebody got more power and privilege when it's not always true. OK, and so it kind of. Does that make sense? So it's a, it's a, it's it's a very complex thing, but at the heart of when I'm teaching, even though people of color don't have privilege, I have privilege on the other statuses that I have. You know, I, I am privileged because I'm educated, right? And I have that. To, if if I'm not, does that make sense? So I'm able-bodied, whatever those levels, so that I can. Um, and so. We're just talking about racism at this point. There are other isms that are at place as well at the same time that the racism is in place. So I think at the foundation of it, power and privilege, that's what it, the ultimate definition. And I think that's what distinguishes 
the racism from racial biases and other kinds of things that you're dealing with. You had asked us at one point to think about the unanticipated, you know, connections um, that this year's programming uh, points us to or might point us to. And as as we were talking about the multiplicity of how racism shows up uh, for individuals uh, in systems, um, I was struck by how so many critics of this kind of work oftentimes oftentimes retreat to the concept of uh, religious language uh, or the the frameworks that are created by religion. Um, uh, My first graduate work was in seminary, uh, Masters of of Divinity and Masters of Theology. Um, And so I've been thinking a lot about how, uh, particularly given our context in the local community, how religious organizations, uh, churches, synagogues, um, mosques may be able to enter into this conversation, should be invited into this conversation to help us think through these things. Uh, going back to something that Dr. Uh, Flores says, it's interesting to me that so many people here that attempt to get us to think about our psychological dynamics or our internal dynamics, um, they hear that you just need to accept that you're a racist as a, in quasi-religious terms, right? Uh, as a rhetorician, I'm constantly thinking about how my audience will hear it. And uh, what's so important is that the kind of work that Dr. Flores has done and that uh, Dr. Um, Bonilla Silva has done is very much rooted in materiality, right? The actual policies and processes and, and movement of power through systems that we have to wrestle with. Somehow we should be able to do both of those things. But when we're hearing that language of you know accepting that you're racist, that's a simply another way to say, to look at history. All the things Dr. Marbley has been laying out in this conversation, it's the more I had learned it, and for the record, began to learn it in seminary, not <laughs> that, that's where I first saw uh, the census data change over time and these categories just bouncing all over the place. And I was like, wait a minute, that <laughs> I learned that it wasn't, that was a social construct in that moment. It's like, oh, it's not a biological reality. Otherwise, these things would all be the same <laughs> over time. So I so had to kind of come to terms with that at the same time, allowing space and calling space and holding space for um, uh insights from uh, the African-American church, the black church in America, uh, who had, was very much involved with resistance and critiquing systems. Uh, those are one of the, I think that just gets at the question of unexpected connections, like where this might take us, uh, where this theme might uh, be able to direct our, our work this year. May I add something real quickly? My daughter, who's I think probably one of the top scholars in anti-racism that I know and teaches and do all the interesting stuff. She said to me once, when she was talking to a group of people, white people, who's going to hold you in check of your own racism? Okay, so the idea, and I think this was an incident of somebody who was working for a big organization and uh, accused them of being racist, and they respond, well, we're going to fire her, and then she was going to go, and she said, but first, first of all, you are incapable of holding your own self accountable for your own, your own racism. You, you got it? And so, you know, for us... It's bigger than scholarship. It is, it is personal. And so the idea is, even at our institution, when you say things that people don't like, when you say things that make people uncomfortable, you have a way of disappearing. And I don't mean, you know, y'all get it. So you, you're no longer the one who they call on. And so that in itself becomes an act of racism. So, you know, as this, as this group moves forward, we're, we're hoping that we have of a, 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 a group or something or a structure in place for those who do this work 
so they're not hurt by it. And so that we can actually make that kind of progress without feeling if I'm saying something that makes some people uncomfortable and there are some negative consequences that goes there. And so that's one of the unanticipated things that have come out as a group. We really don't want to leave it with this is the theme for the year, but taking it further and making it sort of a, a structure of, of, of our university or at least our institution. Well, I, I like that you mentioned that because one of the things you've built into this year's programming is attention to how academia can be anti-racist or how academia can be racist. And I want to hear a little bit more about what's the importance of turning a critical eye on universities, on academia, and what would it mean for Texas Tech to be an anti-racist institution? Especially because we are, a, a, for example, a Hispanic certain institution, I think it's our duty to educate everybody on campus about how to be an anti-racist. And, and to, you know, if, if we all have to just be aware and acknowledge when we do something wrong and then try to correct it or say, I'm sorry, that is going to help. That's going to be very helpful. Um, we also need to be aware that there are um, there is a structural inequality in which, you know, the, the institution itself it has rules and things in place that will um, put people in disadvantages, in particular, like faculty of color in disadvantage. And so we need to try to get rid of those institutionalized practices that can uh, be on the, you know, uh, obstructing the way for uh, faculty of color or the staff or even the students to move forward. And, and so I think that... Um, if we want to continue to be a, a Hispanic serving institution and, and to recruit more African-American students into the university, we need to make it a, a place, you know, that where they're going to feel comfortable and, and, and welcome and respected and valued. Texas Tech, I, I think we're in a really good place to move forward. And, you know, I've been here a while, 25 years roughly now. And I've watched us grow. I've listened to our conversations. I've looked at our policies, our mission, and where we're going. And I really, I've not had uh, any of our higher level administrators who have not been open to that change and not aware of that need to change. Uh, we also have a generation of Gen Xs who are demanding. They're very different, they're social, they're very social conscious of what that looks like. So I think it's a it's a good opportunity for us to be a leader, okay, in, uh, in actions as well as in, in, in philosophy and so forth. And so um, we, we'll see, but it just, I've, I've just not, maybe I, there seem to be open. We, we've had, as this committee, had a lot of support um, from those that we have talked with and um, who have embraced uh, our theme and our work. And so um, I, I think it, it really looks, and so we, we, we have a commitment here and a responsibility um, to carry the baton in, in a way and maybe ultimately figure out who to pass it on to as well. 
Yeah, I, I think there are so many reasons that it's important for the university, for Texas Tech, and for uh, academics to um, be thinking about how to integrate anti-racism in, into our work if it's not there already. So, you know, as people who contribute to um, to knowledge that that you know has a ripple effect beyond our disciplines and beyond our university. I think it's really important that we're doing our best to make sure that we understand um, how power shows up in that work and how we can um, work against uh, you know reproducing oppressions and reproducing harmful ideas and behaviors. Um, in the classroom, you know, so many students go through our, cl our classrooms, and I see that as a real space of possibility where we can engage students in thinking together about uh, what power looks like, how it affects us. Um, and so, you know, this is, this is going back to this idea that, that racism is foundationally about power, right? Um, and another thing that that Dr. Marbley has mentioned a couple times is is the idea of intersectionality and these different systems of oppression. They are interconnected, um, and so I think it's really important for us to be um, trying to to make those connections and, and point those connections out to students and um, to to think together about what we can do. Um, you know, in, in our local communities, in, in the classroom as we're teaching, and in the knowledge that, that those of us who are researchers produce. Um, I, I think that there's just so many layers of work that, that we can do in connection to the university. The question about what it would look like for Texas Tech to be an anti-racist institution is a really challenging one. Um, the pandemic has made it possible to go to a lot of different workshops, and I remember sitting in one online uh, with Dr. Uh, Kena Ichokiak, an indigenous scholar in my field, and she asked what I thought was a very bracing question, um, or, or gave a very bracing answer to the question, what does it mean to be anti-racist? The, the answer is, uh, is it materially improving the lives and conditions uh, of those uh, who are uh, marginalized and oppressed by the systems. Um, and so it's very easy and the danger for these kinds of activities, our theme included, is always that having had the speaker, having had the talk, having presented the paper, we walk away from that and nothing changes fundamentally, whether for the, the, the experience that students have on our campus, uh, the experience that faculty uh, of color have uh, day to day in departments uh, as you know, being subject to various policies, uh, keeping that material benefit uh, at the forefront uh, is going to be crucial for assessing. We're, we're very big on assessing in institutions like this, assessing whether we've succeeded. And, but here's the kicker, right? If you are genuinely doing the kind of intersectional analysis that Dr. Znish, Dr. Marbley, and Dr. Flores have, have invited us to do and that our, our speakers and activities will invite us to do, it benefits everybody. It makes everything better for everyone. It doesn't have to be lose-lose, right? A quote from the from uh, Ransby's biography of Baker about a more uh, egalitarian, democratic, and humane world for everybody. That's that's the goal. That's what it will look like uh, for us as an institution, us as a city, a state, a nation, a world. Um, and I think that's important to keep in in front of us as we do this work. Excellent. Um, so, just one last quick question: Are there 
any other outcomes that you hope for um, to follow from this year's theme? Something that I really wanted to see happen as a part of the theme. Um, so I, I haven't been at Texas. I haven't been at Texas Tech for a terribly long time. I'm starting my fourth year here. Um, but, you know, I think that a really important part of doing work that engages with systems of power is doing it together, doing it communally um, and collectively. And so something that I really want to happen as a part of this is for people to be able to find at these events or, you know, see through the theme who else on campus is, is engaged in this work, is interested in this kind of work. Um, you know, maybe somebody uh, wants to collaborate on a project or, or host a workshop or, or team teachers or, or something like that, you know, to start to build some of those connections. Um, I know that those connections are already there. And some of it is I don't want to mistake my discovery for, you know, the genesis of, of something new. Um, but surely there are, you know, other people like me who have only been here a couple years who can also, you know, learn more about, about what's being done on our campus. Flores and I, you know, as we move forward as, as especially women, uh, faculty of color, you know, there's a fatigue that comes with fighting all the time. So it's really neat to have, and this is a, we're such a diverse group of folks who've come together and it's growing and growing and to see, you know, how that works. I think I'd be remiss not to mention how difficult it is with the uh, past political climate and the things that are happening and the you know laws that are being out there to remain optimistic about what that really looks like. And I think at the heart of anti-racism work is personal. You see, the idea is what are you doing personally to be anti-racist, not to be non-racist as a different animal. So the idea is here's a group of us and um, all of you, you know, I've, I've been working with and um, uh, Dr. Flores and I, we, 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 and Ali, have been in trouble with for a while, but it is, it's, it's, it's like a, 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 a light beam here in the midst of darkness. I mean, I was just looking at all this, the stuff that's happening with the floods and all that stuff that's going on to remain still um, um, focused on at least moving our part of the needle forward. And then I think what um, Dr. Nish is saying ultimately, you see, racism is bad for everybody and anti-racism is good for everybody, regardless of what uh, psychologically or socially constructed idea of what, how you're putting yourself in. It is any oppression, it, it, it hurts everybody. And so I think at the top of the list, if we can at least make people aware of it, then hopefully our ultimate goal in my mind is commit to some anti-racist work. I think we will have been extremely successful. That's my, my goal. Thank you. And there you have a preview of the Humanity Center's programming for this academic year. The full calendar of anti-racism events and activities for fall is available on our website. Please also take a look at the show notes for the list of works I mentioned in my introduction this month. I'm, of course, grateful to Drs. Flores, Marbley, Nish, and Pilaya for taking the time to sit down and talk with me about our theme, and I'd like to acknowledge their colleagues on this year's anti-racism programming team. 
from the Department of English, Cordelia Barrera, Nezreen Shaheen, and Marta Kwanda, and from the Texas Tech School of Law, Sophia Chapman and Wendy Tolson-Ross. We'll continue talking about anti-racism in other contexts in our next episode as we meet other Texas Tech and Lubbock community members dedicated to this important work. Finally, to close this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the work of Callie Watson, who edited this podcast all last year as a student member of the Humanities Center staff. I'm grateful for Callie's patience and expertise, and we wish her well as she moves on with her academic career. I'd also like to welcome Gavin Stockard to the Center's team for 2021-2022. Gavin will take up Callie's work of turning my convoluted notes and poorly labeled audio files into a unified conversation each month. And many thanks to Justin Hughes, the Center's Executive Administrative Assistant, and to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. Please join us in October for more Humanities Now.